0: Halliburton was stunned. Malika. Uh The league is stunned at this trade.
1: First ten for three. Haliburton. Oh! What a great read! Now he's gonna steal. Cortez oh. throws it down. There's Turner just back in. Gets his own board going strong. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. I'm joined by my co-host, colleague and friend, Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing today?
0: I'm doing well. Can you believe that the season is over, Mark?
1: Mercifully, yes, uh, it is over. I'm very thankful. Uh, We have much more fun and exciting things that we can dig into um, now that it is over. Um, How are you feeling about it?
0: I might have listened to Freddie Mercury sing "Break Free" when the last <laughs> when the last minute of the clock ran out against the Brooklyn Nets. I might have.
1: Yeah, that game might was, admit uh, that. was stinky. Jeez, the defense was terrible from, from both sides in that game. I know it was the last game of the regular season, but that was a uh, that was certainly something.
0: Yes, but they kept fighting to the final minute, as we were told lots of times. But good for um, them, you know. But I thought it was funny because Jeff Van Gundy during the game, I watched it on ESPN and he was Mm. (laughs) midway through the first or the second quarter. He was like the transition defense in this game is deplorable for both teams. I was like, you get me.
1: Yeah, yeah, Uh, that was I think that was the most I've agreed with Jeff Van Gundy during a game in a long time. Um, He was he was he was very, uh, very not excited about that game and I I can't blame him for it. well, first of all, before we get started to everyone listening, if you have not already, please be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We want to hear from you and get your feedback. Uh, we'd love to get a five-star review from you. Um, of course, let us know, you know, what you, you think of the pod, you know, either there or on Twitter or in the IC comment section. We all again, we always want to hear from you. Um, Caitlin, what are we doing here today?
0: Today we are starting the player review series, Mark. So we have, we're bringing back the one series where we're gonna do approximately three players per podcast. And for each player that we do, one of us has been assigned to pick one play, one number and one over under that we think best summarizes that player's season. And then the other person's gonna to respond to what we picked. So for the first episode, Mark and I decided to go with the more veteran players on the roster whose futures may or may not be up in the air. We'll see as the summer plays out, but we have Malcolm Brogdon, buddy healed and miles turner
1: yeah um so i took miles and you took buddy and and malcolm how how do you want to get started with this one i think you well i guess you should start because you have you have two but
0: why don't we just go ahead and go alphabetically how's that okay yeah that works so i'm gonna kick it off with malcolm brogdon and for his play it was kind of hard like i had a I had a hard time picking only one play this year, Mark, Mm -hmm. for most of these people. It was, it was hard to know what angle to go from, but I ultimately took us to the Detroit Pistons game in the fourth quarter with under six minutes to play. And the reason I picked this and people will see it, which I want to make sure that everybody knows that's listening. If you want to follow along, we're going to have all this in a post that the I, uh, Indy corner in with the clips embedded and with the numbers listed there. So if you want to go and see the clips yourselves, you can, but the reason I picked it is because right at the top of the clip, you can see that they're inbounding the ball after the Pistons have a make. And I believe it. Yeah. It's O'Shea inbounding it and buddy Tyrese, And Malcolm are all standing there. Tyrese is being somewhat pressured by Corey Joseph on the inbounds. So you might need another person to inbound it, but then you could have given it back to him. But O'Shea inbounds it to Brogdon. So Brogdon's bringing it up essentially as point Brogdon. And Tyrese is completely off ball being guarded by Corey Joseph. Isaiah Jackson immediately goes into an angled pick and roll with Malcolm that puts um, Isaiah Stewart on ball. And now Malcolm goes to the left side of the rim and in isolation effectively once he has that switch and ends up missing the layup. And I should correct myself because at the beginning of the clip, I said it was O'Shea and it was Isaiah Jackson who was inbounding it. But the, the reason I picked that, it's not so much to pick on Malcolm Brogdon or to make it seem like he's a ball hog, but there was a lot of time during the eight games when they came back where there was moments where I asked myself like, now why in this situation, would Malcolm Brogdon be running the offense rather than Tyrese? And it's not to pit the two of them against each other. I don't want this to turn into a Turner-Sabonis conversation. But the why is always important in these things. So at the end of that game, Tyrese had had a little bit of trouble against switches, getting into the paint against Killian Hayes, being debate whether it was a foul or not. But he, he couldn't make traction to get into the lane. Um, teams probably shouldn't be challenging Isaiah Stewart at this point in time, given how he closed out the season on switches you really would have ideally probably wanted to get to the next action or the next play, but it ends up just being, you know, a one and done isolation. So I kind of want to get your overall thoughts on how some of the fourth quarter offense tilted, whether you think this is a good or a bad thing. And, and this how you saw that pairing over, you know, it wasn't a huge sample size. We only had eight games, but I struggled to pick something before that for Malcolm Brogdon because the team changed so much.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I think we talked about this a lot, too. What's interesting is, like, a lot is going to depend on on things from game to game. Um, and as we see Tyrese try and grow even more as an on-ball player, um, like a lot of why the ball wasn't in, in his hands had to do with how defenses were playing to a degree. Um, I think I'm trying to think of the right way to say this. Um, Well, what makes it interesting too, is I just want to know how I'm not trying to, again, I'm not trying to make this like a, what is the front office thinking type thing, but um, with reports from Mark Stein coming out about the team potentially being, you know, aggressive in going to sign Jalen Brunson as a free agent this summer, that um, again, this is, this is about Malcolm, not necessarily about um, Tyrese, but like, you know, oh, it has to be
0: tied to Tyrese. This is going to be heavily tied to Tyrese. I'll just well, yeah. What exactly? We'll it's that. Like,
1: do they actually view Tyrese as the "quote unquote" point guard of the future? Uh, and like, we can never go wrong with I'm, like. I, I don't know what I mean by we, but like, a team can never go wrong in having multiple ball handlers. But also, like, I don't know. It's it is funky. Um, I don't know if that really added much. But like, are you are you kind of like? I know we talked about that before we even got in the pod, but um, I feel like that just makes it even a little bit murkier. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's been somewhat murky. I think a lot of the messaging around the team has been murky, but I'm with you. We did talk and break down a lot of these games that in some circumstances, like when it was late against Cleveland and Tyrese was having problems with, you know, Jared Allen or or Evan Mobley switching out and the Pacers went smaller and had Dwayne Washington where Brogdon's almost effectively the four and isolating against Laurie Markkinen and he's getting to the rim and scoring, you know, that makes sense. But at the same time, like in this Pistons game, they were not scoring late. They were not getting good offense with Buddy and Brogdon isolating against Isaiah Stewart with Tyrese Halliburton off the ball. And the reason I clipped it earlier so that people could see that it was inbounded to Brogdon, that's what kind of kept happening. It wasn't like, you know, Tyrese is racing the ball up the floor and giving it to Brogdon and maybe he gets it back. It's literally he doesn't touch it, this entire possession. And I'm not saying he needs to be, you know, Completely on ball dominant. But what you normally see of him in the games when Brogdon didn't play, or in the minutes when he wasn't out there with Brogdon, he's practically jumping out of his skin a lot of the time because he wants his teammates to inbound the ball as quickly as possible because he wants to yep. head the other way. And that was an element that was missing in this game for sure because they needed to be getting into stuff quicker because they weren't score, they just weren't scoring in the half court. And here, like Isaiah Jackson has a switch. I think it's Cade Cunningham there. Where, you know, maybe he can duck in and get the ball, but like it's it's immediately that Malcolm Brogdon's gonna go to the left side and, and get to the lefty layup, which isn't necessarily his strength to begin with. He doesn't attempt a lot of those um, regardless. So um the dynamic between the two of them was certainly interesting down the stretch of the season um do you want me to head into my one number because this all is telling somewhat of a narrative that i didn't necessarily anticipate on telling when i set out to profile malcolm
1: yeah no i'd love to i'd love to so
0: my one number is minus 17.2 do you want to guess what that is
1: uh minus 17.2
0: i just want to say that i don't take joy in this being my one number but we have to talk about it
1: my I'm trying to hold on a thing. I really do want to get this minus seventeen point two. I don't know. Is that the is that the net rating with him and, and Tyrese in lineups together?
0: You nailed it. Yeah. Wow. So according okay. to PBP stats, they're minus seventeen point two nine points per one hundred possessions and only two hundred one two hundred and one minutes played. So I definitely want to point out again, emphasize only two hundred and one minutes played. And they allowed 127.9 points per 100 with the two of them out there. So it's somewhat an offense and a defensive issue. And when I set out doing this, because I had made reference uh, to this number and something that I did over at Liberty Ballers to preview a Sixers matchup. And I kind of wanted to gloss over it a little bit because, again, that's a very tiny sample size. Net ratings can be finicky. And there are some finicky reasons for why that might have been that way. For instance, opponents shot 42.7% from three against the Pacers during those 201 minutes. So um, that's better than what the Miami Heat shot from three for the season this year. And they were the best three-point shooting team in the NBA at 37.9%. So there's some noise there. You can't completely control opponent three-point percentage. That could just be somewhat degree of luckiness. They obviously didn't play any minutes with Miles Turner. The defense as a whole over the back end of the season was not good. Um, and Brogdon himself was in and out of the lineup. There was times where he did play. there was times he sat out back to backs. he was initially on a minute restriction. They clearly didn't have time to develop chemistry together in the same way that you know Tyrese having played with Buddy, for two years effectively in Sacramento, and then continuing to play with Buddy in Indiana. I'm not necessarily expecting Tyrese and Malcolm to have gelled to that degree and only eight times, only eight games and 200 minutes played. But then when I really started searching through to find out like, okay, what other positive or, you know, quirky reason might have this number been so um, not flattering. I broke it down by game. And their two-man net rating in every game was solidly negative, with the exception of when they had the blowout win over Boston. And that one, the Pacers outscored Boston by 23.6 points per 100 when the two of them were on the floor. And the other seven, it was negative, despite the fact that they won two of those games in Orlando and in Houston. And I will point out that some of those games, like Brogdon played individually, he played well. Like they would not have won the game in Orlando when they came back if Brogdon didn't come in in the third quarter and go off in the way that he did. Um, I thought his minutes against OKC and Boston were good. I thought he did some decent things late, like I said, against Laurie Markin and against the Cavs. And obviously, they also had the really, really sour loss to Memphis, which I don't think had anything to do with Tyrese and Brogan. Like they were just flat out. That was just a talent disparity. Like Memphis was just going to win that game. But still, then I was like, you know, maybe it's because the defense changes. And by the time they get to the fourth quarter, like I'm showing in this instance, some of the offense naturally tilted back toward Malcolm. Opponents really tend to start switching more later in games than what they do at the beginning. Maybe that's why. So I broke it down by quarter. And no, they were a net negative in the first quarter, the second quarter, the third quarter, and the fourth quarter. And again, solidly, like we're talking a minimum, the, the best quarter is, I think, the second with 9.9 negative being the net rating. So. Um, you'd expect it to be somewhat negative because this just wasn't a good basketball team. They only won six games after the trade deadline, but um, it's kind of hard to explain in ways that don't make you at least a little bit concerned about uh, what the on-court fit is, at least without ha- them having a full training camp to prepare with playing with each other.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. I think that's entirely fair. Um, I, I don't, I don't really think I can add anything else to that because I mean, exactly like there is not really uh, anything else that you can say that <laughs> that makes you feel better. I think we just we, like it, it is a small sample size, but it's enough where it it definitely raises your eyebrow. Um, I, I don't really think it's a, a great look and I want to see more from it next year. Um, if that happens next year, I guess that's up for debate. But um, yeah, it's very, very odd.
0: Yeah, because the one thing that's interesting is that. Um, In the solo minutes, when Brogdon was running bench offenses, the Pacers outscored opponents, and that's only Mm -hmm. 70 minutes, but when he was just out there by himself, they did, and pre-trade to post-trade, he got to the rim far more often post-trade than he did pre, and I think some of that was just healthiness, you know, he felt better with the Achilles and came out there, he got some second-side slot drives that I think were beneficial to him, But his rim frequency went up from 33% pre-trade to 47% post-trade, and his rim field goal percentage dropped from 62% to 52%. So getting to the rim more often didn't necessarily lead to more finishing or or better finishing, I should say, kind of like we're seeing in this clip. And when I really, again, I wanted to dig into the numbers more because it felt like to me that in certain games, because the one of the clips I almost picked, I really went back and forth, On whether like not that this is negative but to show that like when they were playing in washington i think he had like 20 plus drives in that game he got to the free throw line a lot and a lot of it was like we're saying like slot drives where it is a little bit easier load on him to just pass it he's so strong he's so good at getting shoulder to chest advantage on defenders that eventually by the end of that game he was drawing triple teams on drives there was two or three where he drew three defenders and that's you know opening up the perimeter for other people So I wanted to know like how much did his spot up frequency change from when they acquired Tyrese? So I went on Instat and I will say that Instat's numbers tend to differ a little bit from Synergy's and second spectrums. I'm not exactly sure why that is. Like I know Synergy's doing hand tracking. I imagine, I don't know how Instat does it, but I will say that if you look, if you look up his numbers for the entire season on Synergy, don't be surprised if these differ somewhat, but um prior to the trade malcolm's pick and roll frequency was 37.3 percent over these eight games when he came back with Tyrese, his pick and roll frequency was 36.5 percent um his isolation frequency prior to 13.3 after 13.2 so those numbers virtually didn't change and now it's possible like when we when we just say pick and roll, I think sometimes we can think that that means that he was putting the initial bend in the defense or that he was running, you know, a high pick and roll like we're seeing here in Tyrese's off ball. It's possible that Tyrese ran a pick and roll threw it to Malcolm's second side and then Malcolm ran a pick and roll. Like we don't know where those originated, but the fact that his pick and roll frequency didn't see any decrease and that their time of possession was close to equal is somewhat telling and how much it changed things. For Tyrese and the games that Malcolm played.
1: Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Do you, one, one thing I want to ask you do you think part of that is just Malcolm's shot falling off? Like, cause he really leaned in driving, like you're mentioning. I think, um, obviously, like I, I do, well, I mean, just answering out loud, I do think that definitely plays, pays, plays part of it. Um, but, I think that that definitely raises more concerns. Like if Malcolm is not getting back to the level of shooter, they can be like, I don't think that he's a 31% three-point shooter. Like, I think he's better than that, but also it's like, okay, well, if he's not somebody who can consistently score, if, if score from behind a, a screen, if somebody goes under, like it definitely does raise questions about his fit with tires, if he's going to be used this way for sure.
0: Yeah. I mean, and, and to that point, um, after the trade on catch and shoot threes, he shot 37 and a half percent, but his volume was lower. So yeah. you make a good point because I had a clip. It's I think it's on my Twitter account. I'm not sure. I remember I, I posted it somewhere <laughs> that when they were in Washington, there was a moment where he was being guarded by Denny. And because he is so strong, like Denny bounced off of him. He backed up to three, had all kinds of space to shoot the three and Pat and passed it up and then drove back into Denny and to his credit drew a foul but it was very telling that one how strong of a mentality he had to be driving because I believe if you look at the numbers that over that eight game stretch he was like fifth in the league in drives per game and then pretty high up there on drawing free throws as well but yeah I mean it seemed like there was a little bit of disconnect with him and how comfortable he was shooting and knocking down shots. And like, if he is playing off ball, I believe in him as a catch and shoot guy more than I do. So, I mean, clear back when I wrote the piece, when they acquired Tyrese, I pointed out that like, yeah, Tyrese isn't quite as strong with his left as his right, but he is comfortable pulling up in either direction. If an opponent forces him to go to his left, whereas with Malcolm, like when you look at the synergy numbers, um, especially when he's at the top of the key, if he goes left, he almost exclusively drives because he's still just not comfortable with his gather pull up into the three opponents typically tend to roll under screens when he's over on that side of the floor. So like, I mean, just looking back at what he did in Milwaukee and clearly the Pacers do not have a source of gravity to the degree, degree of Giannis that would open up stuff for him and relieve his load that I think that's still what role on whatever team he's on. Best suits him versus being a full-time point guard all the time, though I do think he can run some offense. It's just it's overall what what the impact's gonna be on Tyrese. And maybe some of this was just like Malcolm wanting to come back, show the NBA and the Pacers that he's healthy, that he can still play. And like we do know what the discussion was. And I don't think that the front office or the coaching staff necessarily meant any, you know, ill will with the comments, but the initial comments when they acquired Tyrese was hey this is our point guard of the future. And, you know, I'm sure Malcolm Brogdon probably at least had some reaction to that, whether it was what, like, I want to be a point guard, or if it was, you know, maybe this isn't such a bad thing because I've had a lot of injuries and maybe this will make things easier for me. I'm not going to decide for him how he felt publicly. He seemed amenable to it, but then on the court, like a lot of times, like what we're seeing here, it was more him doing stuff on ball. So um, that was the main point there, but Again, this is, I, I apologize, we will have a separate Tyrese pod, but I just think so much of what the Pacers doing, are doing going into the summer has to be with somewhat him in mind and what um, how you build around a player like him that that does fit into my one over under as well. So are you ready for that? Yes. Okay, so the one over under, now let me get the full spectrum of what I have here, is I have selected 20.5 as the one over under. And I doubt you're going to guess what that is. I mean, I'll let you if you want to, but it's it's pretty niche.
1: I will let you go because I'm, okay. I'm going to embarrass yeah, myself. It's, it's, it's pretty niche. Something.
0: I don't think you're going to know. So that is usage rate. And the reason I picked it is because in the minutes that Tyrese played with Malcolm Brogdon, his usage, according to PBP stats, was 16.5%. This is Tyrese's usage. When he played without Malcolm Brogdon, his his usage was 20.9. Now, what's curious about that is in Sacramento, when Tyrese was on the floor with De'Aaron Fox, his usage was 16.2. And when he wasn't on the floor with De'Aaron Fox, his usage was 20.2. So that's almost an identical swing that when he shared the floor with another quote unquote um, point guard that he tend to take steps back in terms of what he was getting with shots, free throws, turnovers. So my question to you moving forward is if Malcolm Brogdon is still on the team, are you taking the over under for Tyrese's usage at above or below 20.5% next season?
1: Ooh. Yeah. Um.
0: And I guess I should also say, how important do you think that is? Is it important? Oh, if I it's think it's insanely
1: that? important. Um, like, I mean, the idealized version of Tyrese is somebody who is capable of doing more on the ball. And I think helping encourage him uh and in some ways i don't want to say forcing him sounds unf- like like just i don't know it sounds harsh but like in some ways i think that they do need to really prioritize making things run through tyrese um and if he's below 20 and a half percent usage next year i would be pretty bummed about that uh as an analyst i think i'm gonna go under just because i don't i don't at the expense of sounding like a total pessimist i just don't really trust this team to actually do that so i'm gonna say under for now
0: i think i'm gonna lean under because i just think that's somewhat tyrese's nature and if it is the under does that change or shape your opinion at all of whether malcolm brogdon should be back on this roster
1: oh wow um I'll say I don't mean this as an indictment of Malcolm. I love Malcolm as a player and he seems like a great dude too, but like just for the direction of the team, I think it should shape how they view that for sure.
0: Yeah, I mean it it was it was it was more I don't know what word I want to use, but It was hard to gloss all over this all the way once I really dug into where some of these numbers were coming from, because originally I thought looking at it that, you know, well, they had a really, you know, a 33 point beat down to Memphis. Well, teams did alter what they did, and there were ways that just from a completely basketball standpoint, I could understand the way that it tilted this way or that, but um I think because from what I've seen of Tyrese and I don't necessarily think like I fully expect that his teammates genuinely enjoy playing with him. Um, I don't know this from them personally, but because he is so much by nature that he's not going to take bad shots, that sometimes he's not even going to take good shots and that he's going to constantly look for the extra pass. And he is the playmaker, of the caliber that he is. I imagine that he's a very fun player to play with and that there's a very um, inclusiveness to having him out there as your main point guard. And it's not necessarily even that I think that he has to necessarily be your number one top scoring option, depending upon how the rest of the roster is built. But I do think the majority needs to be getting initiated by him and that you ultimately do want him getting more shots and free throw attempts. Because I know Tyrese has mentioned like watching film of Chris Paul, and trying to learn from him and like wanting to be in that sort of mold. And like, I don't think Chris Paul has had a usage season of 20% ever in his NBA career. I think I checked that before I got on. um, I think I looked at cleaning the glasses numbers, which again, their usage differs slightly from what you're going to see at NBA.com and PVP stats in part, because they're not including garbage time. But, um, I think that number needs to go up and, you know, I don't know, like if we go back and forth, like some of these quotes are kind of interesting because um, when Rick Carlisle last Friday, I mentioned this to you before we got on the pod, um, talked about or shot down the rumors about him wanting to move into the front office and that he came to the Pacers to coach. He closed it out and said that when Malcolm Brogdon's healthy or when he is healthy, when we get a healthy Malcolm Brogdon back next year, he's a game changer. He's a game changer when he's on the floor. And like, I think Malcolm Brogdon's a very good player. I hope people don't take away from this that I think that he hasn't been good for the Pacers over these last three years and that he doesn't add value to teams. I don't know that I necessarily saw game-changing stuff. I mean, we know what the Pacers' record was post-break and, and they will get other better players back to play with both of them. But the other quote that I found very telling that I wanted to include in this conversation was after that Nets game, when Rick Carlisle was asked about TJ McConnell, um, he said, seeing him being McConnell and Tyrese out there together is really great because these guys motor the ball up and down so fast, and it really brings an element of speed that we just have not had. And I don't think that's incorrect. Like, I don't think Rick Carlisle is incorrect in saying that, but – I do think that if if Tyrese is out on the floor, he wants to play fast, and T.J. McConnell naturally wants to play fast as a reserve backup point guard, and that does again that kind of shapes the way that you might want to build the team.
1: No, one hundred percent, and I, I agree with you. Like I think, um, or agree with you is the wrong way to put it. But like I I wrote something a little uh, recently about Emmanuel quickly because. Um, Knicks fans, have, for, for people who aren't like super top tapped in with the Knicks, Knicks fans have been all over, is he a point guard, is he not a point guard blah, 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 all this and that and I think you can draw a lot of comparisons between him and Tyrese, obviously Tyrese is a higher level of player, he's a better passer, he has a little bit more as a scorer, I think he's got more shake in his handle, that's not the belittle manual, that's more like Tyrese is awesome, really interesting prospect, but like well he's not technically like a traditional point guard and in a sense, like like you're talking about. And part of what we saw when he first came over after the trade deadline is what makes it important to prioritize that moving forward. He wants to get out and run. He makes his best decisions when he can find odd man advantages or he can just get out and and make things happen quickly on the break. Like playing with pace is what really allows him to put pressure on the rim because he's not a guy who typically is putting a ton of pressure on the rim necessarily. Like he does, he has ways of doing it, but like I think part of what helps him do it is. He's fantastic at at just driving his tail off in early offense and and out of transition or off of live rebounds, pushing the pace, getting two feet in the paint, and then finding really good reads out of there. Like, that's so prioritizing a lot of pace and movement and getting more shooting around him. Like, same thing, like like you mentioned with TJ McConnell. Like, okay, that hasn't been Malcolm's game. And part of that, too, it's not Rick's game, uh, which is probably more – important part in the conversation we've had too but like yeah exactly um if you're going to get the most out of him as a primary option it is through playing with more pace
0: yeah I mean I think overall my general take on this is that I think that they can play together
1: yeah no definitely
0: but but I think changes are going to have to be made and that we didn't necessarily see them over this small eight game sample size maybe that happens Maybe there's a change in mentality and and the way that, you know, both of them operate to a degree because there are times where Tyrese needs to realize I'm Tyrese and I need to get more shots than what we've had. And there's probably going to need to be some reckoning with Malcolm that, hey, like your body tends to wear down all three seasons that you've been with the Pacers. It would be better for you probably to be doing less and to be off the ball more um for your long-term longevity over the course of a season and like no offense but like tyrese is just the better playmaker of the two like he opens guys up for stuff that we'll get to, I think, later on and one of the other two players that we're going to cover in ways that we haven't necessarily seen with Malcolm. So if they're both willing to accept that they need to change in those two ways a little bit, like I see the future with it. It's just that then the question is is kind of goes back to the front office more broadly and what they're going to have to decide and that it's not necessarily a match timeline wise. So then is it worth it? Like, I mean, we can get into Jalen Brunson in a separate conversation, but Jalen is younger than Malcolm Brogdon if that's a direction that they wanted to go in. Or if they, you know, I don't know if we want to touch that Russell Westbrook rumor, but, you know, if you did want to unload the contracts, like you're just not seeing that you're going to be, you know, necessarily competitive right away. You're not seeing a path to that. You do want to find a way to move Malcolm and Buddy to other, you know, somewhere else and you're going to get draft picks back. I'm somewhat, I want to say broadly and generally speaking, not necessarily to the Russell Westbrook conversation. I can understand that line of thought depending upon how free agency and, and what draft picks they get shake out. But I think it can work. I just think changes are going to have to be made for it to work. Yeah. And I'm not willing to just look at all these numbers and look at what I'm seeing here in this clip and be like, oh, none of that matters. That, that's just, you know, this is too tiny to care about.
1: Yeah, uh, Miles didn't play, so clearly, you know, we can't we can't take anything into consideration. Obviously, um,
0: right. I mean, I I, I I agree with that to an extent. Like, no, yeah, I'm just, I'm just joking. Yes, but yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. I'm not um, willing to just be like injuries. I don't care.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. I I guess we can. I just want to hit on the Russell Westbrook thing really quickly. Okay. First of all, <laughs> need to get um, it off your chest. Yeah, I just need
0: to speak your truth.
1: To I, so I I I did not keep the receipts, but trust me, it's imprinted imprinted in my brain. Uh, I saw you I saw you. If you tried to talk yourselves into this trade yesterday, no 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 no. Uh, from any kind of like league wide analysis perspective, this is that would be an objectively terrible trade. Like the the trade that Shams mentioned was uh, Buddy Heald and Malcolm Brogdon for Russell Westbrook in two firsts. And I do think it's also important to note this was not sourced. This was like, this was just rival, a, this rival is, executives. yeah, exactly. Like this was just like a, well, an idea that's been thrown around, not a, this has been talked about. Like that, this is not anything that is coming out of the Pacers front office. I, I know you hit, hit on it a little bit yesterday. I'm not saying that you and I are experts, but if this trade actually happened, that would be like highway robbery. And that's not to be unfair to Russ, but just compared to like what things have been for him only getting two first back. Like, I think we saw what, um, uh, geez, I'm trying to think. Um, like, we've seen, like, starting level players get get more, more back than that. And I think you can quibble about that with Buddy, but with Malcolm, I do think he will, um, you're not just trading those guys in salary dumps. Like, I would be pretty shocked if that happened. Um, and I also question greatly whether or not the front office, and less front office, more ownership, would be willing to cut west russell westbrook can pay 47 million dollars for somebody not playing
0: um that does not seem
1: like a historical trend that uh that would really stick in indiana
0: right and because because we've covered malcolm and we're going to cover buddy i think it's fine for us to talk about all this and yes i do want to point out too that it said that this was coming from rival executives and anytime i see a report like that like i always wonder who qualifies as a rival executive, just all of them, like all 29 other teams are rivals, but anyways, um, the, yeah, I mean, I was very surprised at the amount of people who are amenable to that. Um, and it's not because I think both of us, I mean, I don't want to speak for you, so feel free to contradict me, are not opposed to taking a longer view with this roster. Yeah. Um, and realizing that, Hey, like, cause to me, like just speaking in broad strokes, Unless like if they're going to make short term moves and by a short term move, I mean, like, go out and find other veterans that could make this team better or trade draft picks to get guys that could make you better in the immediate. Those moves better come with a pretty good. You better feel very strongly that you can your your ceiling is not a first round exit or being a tough out. Like you better think that you're gonna be more competitive than that if you're going to make that type of a short-term move. So if that isn't out there, I'm not opposed to, you know, looking down the road and continuing to build with these younger guys and whoever else that might be. But in this case, you'd be trading two quality starters for draft picks that aren't going to convey for five years from now. And people are like, well, you could flip those picks and package them for the next disgruntled star. I'm like maybe like i'm not gonna say that that's not a possibility but if these picks were such a hot commodity i think there'd be a lot more teams lining up for the chance Taylor, horton tucker would
1: not be a laker if people cared about those picks so
0: exactly um, exactly like yeah. there there would have been changes at the trade deadline if that was you know such a hot commodity like my overall thinking is and people are like well russell's not going to be on the truster. i'm like well I would hope not. And like Mark Stein made vague reference to this. And I don't want to put words in his mouth, because if you read it in his sub stack, he was very clear in saying like, this is not coming from the Pacers. It's just a thought of that they could be a team who theoretically, if they wanted to go in this direction, could. Mm-hmm. That like he was making it sound like you know Russell would never play uh, a game with the Pacers, which makes yeah. complete yeah. sense because that I, would completely undo that would completely undo everything that they mm-hmm. just like. That's not the reason you trade Demontis Sabonis, and that is not the reason that you finally destroy the crux of Monte Ellis's waved and stretched contract to then potentially do it again. Because like, is that what you're going to have to do? Wave and stretch Russ's contract over how many years, and then you're just. I, you know, no, like I have to believe. And again, I always qualify this and say like Kevin Pritchard, Chad Buchanan, they know way more than I do. They know what's out in the NBA. They knew that Tyrese Halliburton was available. We certainly didn't. So I don't think I'm smarter than them, but I have to think that there would be a better way if you merely wanted to unload the contracts of Malcolm Brogdon and buddy yield to get better returns and perhaps Quicker returns than that, because you also have to think about front offices. Like, do they feel good about reshaping this roster? And where, you know, how long they're going to be with the team to make something that's not even going to happen for five years? Like, I don't know.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, I think we're we're definitely in locks up with that. Um, yeah. Um, are you ready to move on to Miles?
0: Yes, yeah, so let's move on to Miles. I haven't seen or heard from him. Well, I have heard from him from yeah, yesterday. Well, we, we in terms of basketball, I have not seen.
1: Um yeah I mean one thing I do want to just hit on this quickly before we even dive into the um the one with him but uh, like he mentioned in his exit interview yesterday that the uh you know them finding the stress reaction was potentially career saving for him which was uh I don't want to say a shocker um but like I mean that definitely took me by surprise hearing and seeing that um I'm very glad that that is the case and you know that he was held out and did not play but It also got mentioned that like initially he um you know he like told them told the training staff they had discomfort and they said it was I don't want to say that they blew it off, but like that it was a little bit odd. Um I'm not trying to it was a strange
0: quote and like a very strange quote. I'll wait to see it from video because I don't know the entirety of what he meant because I think the sentence here is when I addressed it, you're probably sore or tired or whatnot. And then it showed a stress reaction. So who knows? I mean, we do know going back to it that Rick Carlisle did say that he had felt some soreness the last couple games. So we decided to get it evaluated, which I mean, at the time, I think both of us were like, you know, given how much he was being involved in trade rumors and even just beyond trade rumors, just, you know, caring about the overall health of the player and making sure that something like Miles said was avoided, which thankfully it was, that I was surprised that he was still playing when he had soreness especially through garbage time of that game against the Phoenix suns. I mean, he played until there was like a minute and a half left or I don't remember how much time, but yeah, that, that was an eyebrow raiser.
1: Yeah, no, it was definitely odd, but uh, again, just happy that he's able to get back on court and um, getting back to a place of good health. It was cool to see him again. It's, I kind of have, have missed getting to see him and he's obviously, you know, he's been, he's been having fun. Uh, he, he, Set the world on fire yesterday, not yesterday, two days ago, uh, wearing mittens to uh, to Barclays Center, which I was uh, was not ready for, but he uh, he chose to rock the look and and he was uh, he was confident. It, so so props to him. Uh, did you did you wear your gloves for this uh, this episode? I, I debated it. I know we talked about it.
0: I mean, I should have. I'm, I'm pro igloo chic. <laughs> I'm pro people wear whatever you want to wear. And like, exactly.
1: It's, it's I just your... got to say some of the uproar was nasty. I don't like,
0: why is there nasty uproar about an outfit in an arena?
1: Exactly. Like, let the man wear what he wants to wear. Who gives a shit um, props to him? Never forget. I mean, this man showed up as Darth Vader on Star Wars night. Do you remember that?
0: Yes. Yeah, <laughs> That was awesome.
1: Uh, Miles loves it. And I'm, I'm stoked for him. But yeah, let's uh, let's dive into the one um, I cheated. I'm not gonna lie. I Completely cheated on this. I do not just have one play. I have one game um, that is a string of highlights that I will I will throw in. But the one game, are you? Can you guess what it is?
0: I'm guessing it's either the 40 point. Outing it is the or 40 point the, game. The, yes, the I, I told you. I
1: um, it's a 40 point game just because of like I went back and I was watching that yesterday um mainly because i was just i just told like like, as soon as i i I knew what time we were doing this i was like all right well i gotta get prepped for this and i i thought to myself i was like wow i really haven't watched miles turner play basketball in like two months and that's wild to me it's been longer than that actually i guess he hasn't played since january um and i threw this game up again yesterday and just like watching how he scored i almost had forgotten how little he actually dribbled the ball like Mm -hmm. And I think that's – I mean, we've we've hit on this so many times, but I think it's just important to hit on again. Like, that game to me, as we've talked about, was so emblematic of who he can be as a player. Um, like, obviously, he's not going to score 40 every night, but, like, that was the best he's ever moved without the ball in his hands. Like, he just – he flowed. He found his way to, to the ball. He was aggressive getting – to the rim or just doing anything like there was no hesitation in his game. Everything was okay. I have the ball. I'm going to shoot the ball or I have the ball. I'm going to move the ball and then I'm going to move. Like you just could tell he wasn't thinking at all that game. Um, And that was, that was perfect. Like it, I, I think that, that that's all you can really ask for him is to be that kind of player. And I know he wants to be more than that. And I think you know, there's some leeway there for sure. But like, I just keep going back to that game and going, yeah, he's not going to score 40 every night. But this is like – this is the idea of what I want to see from Miles Turner, like being somebody who is just going to constantly find ways to make himself a weapon in the offense because he's so good when he is able to do that.
0: Yeah, I mean, in that game I appreciated the fact that like like what you're saying, you know, one of the threes he caught in the corner when I broke this down, like he didn't even dip the ball. He just let it go. Um They run the play that I wrote about, you know, they it's like a little fake flare and then they zip it all the way back around into a pick and roll. And when he caught it at the top of the key, he realized like, hey, my guy sagged on that flare cut, which is in part why that play is designed that way. So that if that person does that shot opens up, he recognized it. he took the shot and made it like it wasn't even just that he was making the shots. It was it was in part that. The Wizards were not paying him much respect, if any, throughout most of that game until the end when they started switching some screens and he recognized that and made himself a factor. Um, I don't think that that's something that's gonna happen every single game because teams are going to, not every team's gonna defend him exactly like the Washington Wizards. I mean, we saw that. Like if you just compare the two games that they played against the Knicks, he had a very good outing. I believe it was the first game that they played. He was defended by Mitchell Robinson. Julius Randle defended Sabonis. He made the shots like that was kind of Tibbs's M.O. against the Pacers for the past two years since he became coach of the Knicks, that he was going to have Nerlens or Mitchell Robinson or whoever's at center defend Miles and sag off so that they could send extra help to Sabonis and on pick and rolls and really flood over. And Miles recognized that's what it was, and they would not have won that game if Miles didn't shoot the ball the way that he did. And then when the next game happened, Tom Thibodeau flip-flopped that matchup and put Mitchell Robinson back on Sabonis, and they weren't sending an extra helper. So like that did make a difference. Like sometimes I feel like the discussion with miles and I don't completely disagree in that, like in terms of role acceptance and that what he does defensively is his main utility. But for what the makeup of the roster, especially what it was before the trade deadline, him making those shots was necessary to at least get the defense to consider Guarding him closer, because can I throw you two numbers in this? Like, I know that you have ones picked, but it, it it goes into this. So, if you had to guess, what do you think he shot from three and wins this year versus what he shot in losses? And just I to actually put it almost out there,
1: used this as yeah. a stat, yeah. and just it's to put it of... out
0: there. He, he, there was 15 wins with miles and 27 losses. Just so like, you know, there is a difference in sample size, obviously. Cause the Pacers were a losing team this year. Yeah. So you know it.
1: Yeah. It's like, uh, I think it's 28% in losses and 41% in wins. Yeah. Yeah. Like it is stark. Very like it's, it's, it, it makes the Doug McDermott road home splits look insane. Um, Well, I mean, look normal. I should say, uh, yeah, it, I almost use that as my one stat uh, because it's, again like you mentioned i think it's emblematic part of that is like feeding into, yeah this pacers team had no shooting for most of the mm-hmm. year um but also like it just okay so so much of what those games came down to earlier in this year was can the players who get the ball kicked out to them make shots and um when miles was making shots the offense looked a lot more dynamic um or not like it, it didn't it didn't like completely change everything but like offense looks a lot better when, when shots were made of course but yeah, um, that's a very important stat to point out.
0: I mean, I think it is because we've never really seen, like I know we talked about on the last podcast when we were, hand, or two podcasts ago when we did superlatives and we were talking about the three 40-point games and I talked about why I picked Karras, in my opinion, is the most impressive one because the evolutions to mm-hmm. me of players are, you know, you can, you can score 40, you can... You Now you're getting doubled and you can make passes out of that for your teammates to score. And now you're getting doubled and you can still score. And by the end of that game, like Karis isn't going to do that consistently. But at the end of that game, he was drawing blitzes and he was still finding ways to put the ball in the basket. Like we've never really seen Miles have to ascend to that second place. He's never really been somebody who, for the most part, with the exception like that Knicks game was a very clear example of, okay, An opponent actually changed something based on something he did. Like a lot of times in game, you do not see teams make adjustments. That's why for an entire series against the Miami Heat, there were times where he would make threes and Bam would be like, okay, well, Eric Spolster basically was communicating. If you make a bunch of those, we're just going to live with that's the way that we lost because if you're off ball, we're roaming off of you. And we've never really seen, like, him consistently have enough impact where teams adjust what they do defensively against him. And then in the cases where we have, what's he going to be able to do to still um, impact what that is? Like, I remember the one game when they played in Chicago, he was being guarded by DeMar DeRozan. DeRozan was playing at the four. So the Pacers kind of went more through miles in that game, which makes sense because all he had to do was catch it, turn around, and shoot. I think he scored over 15. I want to say like he had a a pretty good offensive outing, but by the end of the game, that was leading to them marginalizing Sabonis as a screener to an extent, which would have allowed them to attack Vucevic and drop. So they are going to Miles' side. And then that was a case where, okay, the defense did adjust because now they're fronting Miles Turner. And then the offense just stalled because they didn't know what to do after that. Like, okay, the defense has changed for you what's next. So I think that that's why that bellwether kind of does matter because in wins, he shot the ball very well and losses he didn't. And there were games where in losses, if he didn't shoot the ball well, other people were having multiple defenders because his tends to roam off like late in the game when they played golden state and Draymond Green was playing goalie off of him. It didn't matter that miles was going off of exit screens to the corner. Draymond Green was like, okay, see you later, bud. I'm going to stay in here and gum up the pick and roll. So to me that's a big part of what's next because if you look at his uh contested frequency only 31% of his threes were contested and again that's not accounting for limbs and how close somebody might be but in terms of like when he was at the four how far people roamed off of him that's a very low contest rate like that's basically what Sabonis's contest rate was and it wasn't necessarily cuz he was driving a lot of those closeouts cuz he only averaged 1.8 drives per game this year though I do think he could probably do more of that if he caught the ball on more in different circumstances.
1: Yep. No, I think those are all really great points. And I'm right there with you. Um, again, cannot explain enough how jarring it was looking at that number this morning when I saw that, and when I was looking at his home and roads, not home and road is his, uh, his win loss. I was like, Oh wow. That is, that is, that's very different. I almost included the difference between December and January for him. Um. Again, not trying to be unfair, but that the, the, Difference between December and January for him was, was wild uh, in terms of shooting um, from all facets of the floor, I should say um, my one number actually speaking. Hey, can, of, can I say oh, something about yeah, that? Of course.
0: Yeah, because I think that like, there was a lot of factors that were happening over that time period. Like, mm-hmm. you know, trade rumors were really swirling around several people on the roster Um They had, they ended up having the COVID issues where, you know, there's not as many playmakers out there and they had to shift what they were doing. And we don't know how long the foot was bothering him to be real. Like that could have been impacting his release to an extent, but yeah, like I I did, I was with you. I looked up before the athletic article came out and games before that he shot 39% from three after the athletic article came out, he shot 21% from three on 3.9 attempts. And he was averaging more shots, like about two more shots after that, after that article came out, but like the on off splits were rough. Like, I mean, and this is why in part, like Rick Carlisle wanted to talk about, like, I don't want people to take this wrong way. Cause if if you have a healthy miles Turner he is undeniably an upgrade defensively over um, the other options that have been on this roster all season. There's a reason why the Pacers are the worst team in the NBA at defending the pick and roll, both the ball handler and the roller. But like, The defense dropped off long before they didn't have Malcolm and Miles and Chris Duarte. When those three were still available, I looked up just in December, they gave up over 120 points per 100 possessions. When they had, according to Rick Carlisle, those three and TJ McConnell are their top four defenders. So I didn't include TJ because they didn't really play a lot of minutes with all of them together. But the other three they played a healthy sample size of minutes in December and the defense still had problems. So I don't think that's, that's the fault of those three players, but I do think that they need to determine what the reasons were for that and fix them beyond just being like, well, when we're healthy, this will magically fix itself. But anyways, that was my separate tirade. Go on your number.
1: Yeah. So my number is 66.2. Do you know what that is?
0: Is that his percentage at the rim?
1: No, it's his percentage on twos. Um, okay,
0: yeah, that was going to be my next yes twos. Yeah. yeah,
1: which was uh, part of what was exciting about this year. Like, he really did start yeah. to improve some of his interior finishing. Like, just for reference for people, he he shot 60.6% on twos last year, which was a career high, um, and was in the mid-50s, mid to low 50s for his entire career before then. So, like, the improvements that he's he's made – um off the bounce and also just in in more in catch and go situations and getting himself to the rim um again that part has been really exciting to watch and i think another thing that stands out and that's again why it's so vital for him to make his shots from outside uh, because it opens up a lot more for him as an interior finisher as well and um i think it just feeds into our whole thing of like miles turner as a play finisher and somebody who is just operating off of others really works pretty damn well when the shots are falling.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that you could see definite improvements too. And certain, like I said, with Damar DeRozan, you know, being able to throw the ball to him and him seeming like he had a better realization this year of like, Hey, I'm really big and I can just turn and shoot over you. Mm-hmm. Like I don't have to overcomplicate it. I feel like that there was times in his prior seasons Where he would make a move predetermining the way he was going to be defended in the post, just for instance, like before he actually felt the defense and responded, okay, this person's guarding me on my right. I'm going to turn baseline and do X. It was like he was doing it before he ever even recognized that. And this year it felt like it slowed down just a bit for him, um, where like in that game or against Grant Williams, he caught it, turned, and could shoot. I don't think it's perfect against switches. I think that there's a reason why some teams are still willing to give that up. I mean, even in the one game against Boston, I think there was a pretty definite reason why, yes, Robert Williams guards lower usage wings. There's a reason why he was guarding Tory Craig. That's what Boston does. But the fact that they were guarding Miles with Josh Richardson when Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and you know other defenders were also on the floor, that says something. And that's something that, the, that he and the Pacers will have to work through. But um, he did do better. And a different caliber of defense but like he scored against some switches against Houston as well and I think showed again that he's he's grown in patience in addition to what he did in in some games as a driver this year
1: yeah no most definitely um so my over under is not something I'm sure of where to go with here um I I don't know. I've thought on this one. I know last year we did, I did 0.5 last year because I didn't understand how over unders work. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you remember that, but I said 0.5 for games played next year. Well, you can't play 0.5 games. So um, I, I don't know where to go here. I have like multiple listed out, but I'm going to be funny and cathartic and I'm going to go um, 1209. You know what that is?
0: 1209
1: I do not minutes it's going to be over under of the, is he on the team past December 9th oh 2022 this year do you know why that date is significant
0: is that the day when uh all free agents be, are all people who signed in the summer become eligible to be traded
1: no that is the day that the Jared Weiss article came out with the athletics so it, it onlys oh, the anniversary the, the anniversary of the Jared Weiss article on whether or not miles is still here. Um, i guess it's not a, really an over under um more like
0: well i can't be I'll well, it well, i accept it yeah um before i answer that can i <laughs> can i ask you something else yeah of course this was something that i wrote in my notes that i've been pondering that i think plays into this conversation a bit and the and the overall general conversation because there's been a lot of discussion like i know he even mentioned like people forget that i'm let's see I don't want to misquote him. People forget very easily. I'm very confident and very comfortable with my position moving forward. Like, first of all, I don't think any of us forgot that you're very comfortable and want to play the five. I think we all get that by now. But like the conversation about solo five, I'm trying to wrap this around in my head, not so much through the lens of Miles, but who else is on the roster? Because while I do agree with people, like it will, his role will certainly change functionally without Sabonis out there. He, I imagine he will be the screener a lot more frequently than what we saw, though we did see him do that in his own solo five minutes every game. That here's the reason why uh, something that we haven't necessarily seen in a very, very long time, if barely at all, depending upon what hybrid units they've had out there, is just because he's functionally playing as the five, will he be defended as the five? And this was something because i didn't know which direction you were going to go in but like let's like just pretend sabonis doesn't exist let's go back in time to when sabonis was a bench player and they were barely playing any minutes together when thad was a starter they would go to philadelphia and like ideally you want joel Embiid guarding miles turner because miles turner can hopefully you know i i don't necessarily completely believe in the idea of and this isn't just regards to miles but stretch fives and actually stretching defenses I think that there's a degree of tension to depending upon how deep that person shoots but a lot of times it's more just about like the big isn't going to come out there and guard you and it's a good wide open shot if you're a good enough shooter which Miles has shown especially at the beginning of the season he can be that so like when they played in Utah Rudy Gobert did not come out there it wasn't really stretching Rudy Gobert but it was getting a clean, wide open shot for Miles Turner to pop into that space or play against their zone and hit open shots. And so often, when Thad was the starter, no different than when Sabonis was the starter, they would go to Utah and Rudy Gobert would guard Thaddeus Young and they would put a wing player on Miles. They would go to Philadelphia and Joel Embiid would guard Thad around the basket and Ben Simmons would guard Miles because there are they're the benefits twofold. Joel gets to stay in the paint. And Ben Simmons would then switch out to the guard as soon as miles set a screen. So it really would marginalize miles on the offense in that way. Um, when they played Boston, Aaron Baines in the playoffs guarded Thaddeus young and miles drew a wing, or they would switch on to miles. So I'm kind of just wondering, like, I don't know who they're starting for is, but if we're going to see a difference and stuff that miles can do, just like independent of who like we can get into Tyrese and what that will impact for miles as well. But, who is the four that's going to make it. So miles is actually defended by centers.
1: That's a great question. I don't think that person's on the roster. Um, Like, and again, I, I also want to say too, I didn't mean to make this like all narrative. Um, not that narratives are necessarily. No, I'm not thing. trying to make like, it a narrative. No, like, I don't I think you are either. I just mean like, I, I really struggled coming up with numbers for this because I could, I could have talked about his three point percentage and all this stuff. And, um but it's just i just don't know what is he gonna be here next year or not and it's the same thing that keeps coming up like has for a couple of years but it just makes it so confusing on what the team is or isn't doing and i um yeah like i just don't know who who in the front court is optimizing him or he is optimized with i should say like right especially considering like we talked about like ijax primarily has played the five and uh, especially with his I mean I'm sure that that could change it could change in the offseason but like the shooting that he showed in the G League has not translated to the NBA mm-hmm. yet like at least the comfortability I should say like he has openly not looked to take shots and I think part of it too has been like you know the offense has been more of him running stuff um as a DHO operator but also like he's had moments where he's been wide open and he's still looking to um to move the ball and I I mean, if you're going to be a four, that's not happening. Like you have to be someone who the defense is closing out on and caring about. And it just makes it really funky. And then again, it's like, okay, well, O'Shea starting at the four, I guess that makes sense with miles, like, or saying, I guess it's unfair, but like, then again, you're giving up some stuff size wise and it's not always perfect and this and that, but then it's also like, okay, well then what is happening with Ajax? I'm not saying it has to start, but like, If you're not willing to really that willing to play him at the four, and Miles is there starting, playing presumably 29 minutes a game like he did this year, how much time does that actually leave for IJAX? And then you add in Jalen Smith if he is back. And I think yesterday made it seem more like he won't be back in some ways. But like, again, like it just makes it really finicky. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's what's interesting. Cause I mean, I definitely think that if Miles is back that he's going to be averaging more minutes than the 29 that he had. Yeah. Because he's not going to be splitting it with a person like, no offense to Ijax. I like his potential, but like there's a stronger argument for playing Sabonis more minutes when you know he's experienced and polished and as a two-time All-Star versus, you know, giving Ijax more minutes than Miles at the center position. Like, I don't think that's going to happen. I would think that Miles would be nearer to 35 minutes per game if he comes back and is you know, your full-time starting center. And if they do play minutes, like, I think that, you know, Isaiah Jackson will see fewer minutes. He would probably be your backup five. But like, if you just theoretically say, if they're out there playing together, and again, this is not me trying to make it combative. It's just me trying to think through what the matchups would be and how this would impact both of them, is that, I don't, I think Isaiah Jackson would function as the four defensively. I do not think he would function as the four offensively because I don't think you're going to want to sacrifice what he brings in gravity with his vertical pop. I just, I, I struggle to think that that would happen and not that you can't mix it up. I think that, you know, there probably would be some possessions. They do a lot of two, two man screening things. There might be some where we saw you know, jax did make a corner three to his credit in Brooklyn where he was, um, off of the action there might be some of that there are a few other ways to draw up lob plays though the last time when I know that I did bring this up in reference some of those would be like oh hey Tyrese gets doubled kicks out and then if you have a player like Sabonis he could then you know like Draymond Green throw a lob to Ijax crashing from the corner and that's a way to get one without Ijax being directly involved I'm not sure that that would still work in the same way unless like I mean overall like We'll get into Goga in a different episode, but Goga is probably their best four-on-three passer currently. Like that's the one thing he can say that he has an edge on other people at. But I just and it wasn't even so much about it. I mean, it really wasn't about Miles. Why when he was playing with Thad, he was being guarded in that way. It was really more about Thad. So I agree with you. If it's O'Shea, I think that Miles probably will draw the the center, and O'Shea will get defended by whoever the four is with the exception of Boston because they purposely flip-flop those matchups but I don't know that I necessarily and as much as I mean everyone knows both of us think O'Shea is a film room all-star like he does a lot of valuable things that don't always show up in box scores I really enjoy O'Shea Brissette I don't know that I think right now that he's a starting four on a good team exactly and If it's Isaiah, I think that eventually you're going to see like once teams have more scouting report information than what we saw early, because in minutes when Isaiah played with Jalen after the trade deadline, when Isaiah really just, you know, started getting more minutes, there were still some teams that were like, oh, Jalen Smith's probably the center here. We're going to put Jarrett Allen on Jalen Smith. And then as it turned out, it was like, oh, Jalen's hitting threes because Jarrett Allen's guarding him. Or when they were down in Orlando, Mo Mo Bamba defended Jalen Smith. Wendell Carter defended Isaiah Jackson, like they did put the bigger player, probably the less mobile player out on Jalen. I don't think that over a full season, if, if Isaiah and Miles were playing more together, that that's most likely what would happen. I think it would turn in to the Thad situation where the five is defending Isaiah Jackson. So then it goes back to what we said, then the three point shooting will matter more. Um, But one thing I did want to throw into this conversation as well, because I did think this was a telling number and we didn't talk about the Tyrese impact, which I think is very real. Um, And these aren't miles numbers, but they they are relevant to miles because you brought up the two point percentage. So I should have brought this up already that in minutes with Tyrese, Isaiah Jackson shot 81 percent on twos. With, good. yeah, without Tyrese on the floor, he shot 66% on twos, which is, is still good, but like that is a dramatic swing. Telling you, like, I think that that speaks to the quality not only of Tyrese as a passer, but also like just the idea that when Tyrese is out there playing point guard, we saw a lot of times that teams would bring two defenders and blitz him. That's creating an open look for the big in the paint that is very, you know, easy to convert. Same with Goga with Tyrese on the floor, Goga shot. 80% on twos this year without Tyrese on the floor. Goga shot 61% on twos this year. So I think that we will see an uptick in what Miles can do in these situations just because of the way that Tyrese bends defenses, how quickly he gets off the ball when he does see that type of coverage um that that could impact things for him at the center spot. To me it's just about how will he be defended? Will defenses, you know, alter the way that they're defended and then it also goes into what teams are mostly doing against Tyrese that has been more effective, which is switching out to him and how he handles those switches on the interior. And if he can continue to grow in that area, but, um, that was all a very long aside from your question. And I think that my answer is yes, I think he will be on the roster after December 9th.
1: Yeah. Um, I think I'm there with you too.
0: My reason for this is because he's only 25 years old and the extension I think is probably going to be the biggest uh, hinge here for the Pacers. Like if he's not going to sign an extension, you obviously need to think about moving him because you don't want to lose him for nothing. And I don't know where miles, head is on that. I don't know what he's going to prioritize in free agency. I'm not him, but I think it's probably somewhat of a Victor situation and that it's better for both parties in terms of what, you know, him heading into his first real time as being an unrestricted free agent, as well as for the Pacers, for him to come back next season, show that he's moved on from the foot issues and is fully healthy and potentially increase his trade value if, you know, Tyrese can, you know, unlock more for him and if Miles could continue and improve and and show what he can do at this position as he keeps pointing out to people. Um Then that's the benefit to both sides. Like it might be that he, that still means that they resign him eventually next summer, or it means that they could get more in return than what's going to be the case right now when he's coming off of like what you mentioned, not a very good December and January before he hit the foot, hurt the foot. And then also you know, hurting the foot and not finishing another season. So I think he will be on the roster to start the year at the very least. And I think that if he does get moved, that will probably go down to the trade deadline next year, unless something just, you know, and I say this as a person who thought that they probably wouldn't move Sabonis until the draft, because I thought that offers would be better. If they get completely blown away by an offer at the draft, you know, maybe they do something there, but I think that he will most likely be back on the roster.
1: Yeah. Nope. I agree with you. Um, I do think, uh, yeah, I would be kind of surprised if he, well, saying surprised if he gets moved, but like, considering how everything went leading up to the trade-in line, um, and he still didn't get moved, like, I I mean, obviously, Sabonis getting moved instead played a massive part in that, I have no doubt, but. Uh,
0: oh, yeah. I think the foot played the biggest part. Well,
1: yeah, the foot definitely played a part, too, but I do think it was a. Uh, like it, it at least based on like some of the things that were reported, it seemed like that that played a part because Miles just like it seemed like he was a little bit more. Um, not that I don't I don't know, I don't I don't want to like put words in his mouth, but like um, you know, obviously that he wants article... to play
0: the five. Let's just say yes. It, I think that like is, he, the, that is the best. he wants to play the five. That was
1: the best way to put it. Yes. Um,
0: He's been I... making that clear for a long time. Like even before the bubble, <laughs> yeah. I remember he did an interview and somebody asked about you know, Sabonis not being there. And he's like, well, I get to play the five. Like, I mean, I just think that's what he wants to do. And everybody as a player has their right to feel like what position they're most comfortable at. We don't need to hide and act like he hasn't wanted to play it. He does. Yeah. So
1: you put the words right in my mouth for me. Thank you for that. Um, Regardless, I'm just excited for him to get healthy again and see him play because I love watching watching him play. And I think, again, I'm excited to see
0: competent defense. So that's something. Yes. Yes.
1: Actually, one thing we didn't even mention – did you see the quote yesterday where he? I don't have the direct quote, but he essentially said, "Like I thought, we were doing a little bit too much defensively as the year went on," and I thought that was interesting.
0: I agree um, with him. If that's what he I said. agree with
1: him entirely, <laughs> and I was like, "Yes, he gets me." Like you mentioned about JBG. I was like, "Wow, me and Miles are the same person." But yeah. um, good assessment, Miles. Yes, I think going back to it was interesting. One, just last thing I want to hit on: um, I'm really interested to know when the foot started bothering him because. So am I. Going back and watching, like, it feels more and more clear that it, it had been bothering him long before he, he stopped playing. Um, and we talked about earlier in the season how he didn't quite look the same mobility-wise, like, you know, getting out on the perimeter. Like, obviously, he's not somebody who I think – like, he's he's somebody who can definitely handle late switches. Like, he's got the length. He's got the good enough lateral quickness and, and timing and know-how to, to stay in front of somebody for four or five seconds. But I do think, like – he's never really quite been the guy who like you want to just have isolated for 15 seconds and see what happens. Um, But I do think there were moments this year where we really saw like he did not have the same kind of mobility out on the perimeter. Um, And I, I, a lot of me is kind of like, was that because the foot was bothering him earlier? So.
0: I mean, I have to wonder that because I mean, you and I talked about the game they played in Cleveland mm -hmm. when, you know, Dwayne and and Kiefer were starting and it was like, what is going on here? Like, I think Evan Mobley is a very good player. Don't get me wrong. Like, I fully think he deserves to be in the rookie of the year conversation, obviously, but like he struggled in that game defense, not just offensively, but defensively as well. And that, like I said, the defensive issues started for this team long before. So I do wonder in retrospect, like you're saying, how long was the foot actually bothering him? Because otherwise, like there was just so many weird, I mean, And then it even goes to into like, if the foot was bothering him, why was there so many weird places where they were trying to insert him? Like, I mean, the very last game that he played against Phoenix, they opened that game with like three possessions of post-ups against Chris Paul and Devin Booker that went like nowhere. And then the defense was having issues. So like if his foot was bothering him to that extent, you know, why was he, uh, why were he or the team a- asserting himself in such strange places? But yeah, I do wonder if that impacted him somewhat defensively as well, especially given that how much he launches off of that foot to get recovery blocks and, um, to pivot back to the rim from where he covers. So, um, definitely something to look for next year. And I, I look forward to having somebody who can communicate backline defense and, and hopefully try to get some of that back on track, but We went very long on these first two players. We still have to do Buddy. So Buddy healed. I had a hard time, Mark, picking what direction I wanted to go in with Buddy. I really did more so than.
1: Well, if um, you did it like Buddy, probably towards the rim. um, (laughs) I'd imagine.
0: Yeah. Um, (laughs) Sorry, that was was a bad joke. No, so I will. I just want to point out that just because I didn't include this clip doesn't mean I didn't see it, and I want to say that the Pacers transition defense post-trade deadline, as everyone knows watching it, was very bad. And there were times where I got very frustrated because they would be covering it, like various broadcasts would be, and they would talk about somebody needs to get back or like who it was that needed to get back. And like, for example, they played the Celtics And Tyrese drove baseline to kick it out to, I think, Terry Taylor in the right corner. I don't remember for sure. So don't quote me on that particular aspect of it. But Buddy comes from the left wing all the way in to try to crash to the right side to get that rebound. And I don't know if everyone will know this, but there's been like extensive analytics done that if you're a right corner shooter, the ball most of the time does not rebound back to you like it doesn't ricochet on corner threes back to the shooter hardly ever that's a very rare occurrence, but buddy soars in from the left wing and goes to that side to get a rebound and then they give up a wide open layup to Boston at the other end, and they're like talking about well after Tyrese makes that pass he has to get back. I'm like, no, <laughs> if Tyrese is that late, buddy has to stay high and fill when he drives and he's the first person back. And there was a lot of instances where buddy contributed in those types of ways where you don't need to have unnecessary movements. You, you just need to get back. And that is what I wanted to pick, but I didn't pick it because I wanted to take this in a more positive stance, but I just want people to know that I saw that and I've seen it a lot of times, but what I picked was actually a clip. Can you believe it, Mark? I I picked something from the Memphis game. Whoa. Can you you believe I went there?
1: I, Uh, uh, I'm praying for you. Wow. You, you went and did that's uh, in case you guys want to know what the definition of, of masochism, I think that going back and rewatching any part of that Memphis game is going to qualify. I
0: I watched these games twice and I'm I'm not better for it. I'm not better (laughs) for it, but this play I think is emblematic of what buddy did as a pacer and what if we think he will continue to do this if he remains a pacer so they're playing memphis and jaron jackson is at solo five steven adams is on the bench jaron jackson is defending tyrese halliburton just all out like there's not even an initial screen like he's just guarding him which i mean i think really speaks to what jaron jackson did as a defender this year but regardless of that Buddy, as he often does, is always moving. So he noticing of, hey, Jaron Jackson's guarding Tyrese. I want to try to at least cause some hesitation there. Cuts slot to slot to the opposite to try to get his defender to switch on to Tyrese. But Memphis doesn't bite. It doesn't cause hesitation. So he relocates to the right wing. Tyrese passes him the ball. And now Buddy drives on that instead of taking he, he, instead of taking a contested shot, he immediately drives. The defense collapses, and he passes to Chris Duarte on the left wing, and Chris makes a three. All very contained and under control. Um, secondary passing adjacent to Tyrese Halliburton, and, and I think um, now did we see this all the time from Buddy that he never took any bad shots? No. But in terms of his shot selection, willingness to get teammates involved, the way that he moved to try to open things for Tyrese, and then I also want to give a shout-out to Isaiah Jackson because he cut at the same time as Buddy drove, which was effectively kind of a cut assist to also help open up Chris Duarte. But that being the the three-man lineup, the three guards, Tyrese, Buddy, Chris and how they could function off of one another and that um, buddy made that pass, I think says a lot about what changed for him from Sacramento to Indiana.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a really great play to bring up. Um, it, how did you, I mean, this not to completely derail, but how did you feel overall about the buddy experience? If you I could ge- summate it in one word, how would you put it?
0: I generally left feeling positively about it.
1: Yeah. I think I'm there with you too. Um, like, okay, so I'll make you do. Uh, I'll make you do one more word. What one word? If Buddy Hield is with the team for its entirety next year,
0: more? I'd want to know more.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. Okay. I want to
0: know more because I'd want to know how competitive did the roster become over the summer that is like did they feel that they had a good chance to like i said if you're gonna retain people or you're gonna make other short-term moves is it with the idea that you're going to be able to be better than a tough out Mm. um i don't think i'll feel negatively if buddy remains i mean i don't think i'll have a strong opinion opposite of that if they decide to keep him because um something that i also want to bring up with this clip that I've noticed a lot. And I did include in my article on Tyrese when I wrote about how the Kings defended him, which I thought was very interesting, that we can still see the benefit of Tyrese against a switch here, even though he does absolutely nothing against it. Jaron Jackson is defending him this whole possession and he passes out of it to Buddy. And yet we see the double-edged sword of when even a switchy big switches out to the perimeter. Because Tyrese holds that space the entire time. Jaron could flood over and crowd Buddy's driving lane and get over there at the nail and, and make Buddy give up the ball sooner. But he doesn't. He stays on Tyrese. So this is effectively a four on four for the other four players. And there's no rim protector there. Like, if, if Isaiah Jackson's guy didn't collapse over from the corner, which there's reason to do because of what we said prior about Isaiah Jackson shooting, if he didn't, it's just a straight one-on-one from Buddy to the rim because there's nobody to crowd that driving lane. And we did see Buddy get to the rim more this season. Like, I have the numbers here. His rim frequency in Sacramento was 14% with the Pacers. It went to 21%. Like, that's still not a huge number, but... He did have a higher rim frequency, and I think that there's a lot of benefit to playing him in those types of situations adjacent to Tyrese Halliburton, because if you're not somebody who has like a really tight handle or is going to be able to get and navigate and create space in that way, Tyrese's guy isn't going to go over there. So then if if Buddy is a willing passer and isn't just going to take a bad shot, like I said, you're playing four on four against four small guys.
1: Yeah. Um, yes. I'm sorry. I, I totally blanked. I, I don't really know what else to add to that.
0: Yeah, because Buddy's rim field goal percentage also jumped. I mean, it went to 63% with the Pacers up from 57% in Sacramento. It's um, so a lot of his numbers improved over the time that he came. And I think it's kind of it's kind of funny because when you look at some of the jumps that he made, it's very comparable to the 26 games I think he played when he first was traded from New Orleans to Sacramento. It's like he gets somewhat rejuvenated on the move because like, the bumps that he had in various statistical categories, the only other time he's done it in his career was over the initial portion of the season when he first got traded to the Kings. But yeah, I wanted to point out some of the defense stuff, which I think is very valid. I think that there's questions that even if you do have miles turner coming back, if Tyrese and buddy was your starting backcourt, I think you're still going to have some defensive issues unless Tyrese really? really unless Tyrese really builds up his body over the summer. Um, even with miles back there, it will certainly be better with miles back there than what we've had with Goga and Isaiah Jackson and Jalen to this um, point, though we can point out what Isaiah's block percentage has been, but it's not, he doesn't have the same impact as miles as a defender. Like we don't need to get into that yet, but that's just the reality. But Um, I did want to point out his secondary playmaking, which brings me to my one number, which is 89. And you're not going to know what that is. So I'm just going to tell you that's 89th percentile on cleaning the glass and assist to usage rate. So his his usage rate jumped from, or his assist to usage rate jumped from 26th percentile with the Kings to 89th percentile with the Pacers and his usage barely changed. That was just him averaging more assists and making plays like this. Um, there's some settings. Do I think he's as accurate as a lob passer as Tyrese? No, I do not. Um, do I want him finding a lot of opposite corners with his weak hand? Not really, but in terms of running some pick and roll and being more willing to pass in the pick and roll, making some easy pocket passes and doing stuff like this on the move and drive and kick, if he can do stuff like that, he's a lot less one dimensional and it makes you think more that in some hybrid lineups you could play you know, three guards with Tyrese and Buddy and and Duarte potentially and feel okay that he's not just going to, you know, I don't want to say that all he did in Sacramento was take bad shots because that's very reductive and and doesn't fully encapsulate what he offers as spacing, but that he could do more.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree too. I do think, uh, like you're mentioning, um, I think we saw a lot of really good from him showcasing that he could do more but also like again like you're mentioning um the ball placement is just uh it can leave a lot to be desired at times a part of that is just him being overtaxed but i it does make me wonder too whether he's with the pacers next year or whatever team you know um our friend of ours steve jones uh great work over at the dunker spot former video coordinator and his coach in general um made a really good point about like he just hopes that the next team that um has buddy healed like really buys into him being him because i and i I don't mean that in a bad way and i don't think steve did either i think it's more like okay i don't think you can box this guy into like we just need you to run around off ball and that's all you can do like clearly that doesn't work for him as a player um and he doesn't really view himself that way either which i I totally understand and respect and i think like we've seen and you can do more but again like it's probably not to this level cuz there it, yeah. it, it does the train does come off the rails a little bit as he is
0: it's probably not to this level cuz i don't think he's going to get this level of like if he, if he got traded to a good team like let's say that the russell westbrook thing happened and not that the lakers were a good team this year but like if he was playing with lebron and anthony davis and other guys on the roster in addition to malcolm brogdon he's not going to have the pick and roll frequency that he did just now with the Pacers. He's not going to be playing the level of minutes. And there is a part of me that wonders how some of that would scale down because there probably is a certain degree of, if I know going into games that I'm going to have pretty much carte blanche to take what shots I want, and I'm going to get to run more pick and roll and I'm going to get to do these other things that I didn't get to do in Sacramento. You might see more plays like what we're, what I'm showing in this clip, where he is more willing to let go of the ball because he knows it's going to come back to him and he knows he's going to have more opportunities to do it. Um, his pass frequency, his pick and roll frequency didn't go up a ton, 18.5% compared to 15.1 with the Kings, but his pass frequency in those plays jumped by 11% with the Pacers. So that, that kind of shows, and I do think some of it too, like I'd want to give credit to Rick Carlisle and what the coaching staff does because- they're also shifting pieces on the floor. It's like we said on a prior Buddy Healed podcast. Like to compare just him and Justin flip flopping teams doesn't tell the whole picture because the Pacers did not have shooting on this roster when Justin Holiday was playing. He was the main source of shooting, and now in a lot of regards, especially once Chris was out of the picture, it was pre- it's pretty much what we're seeing here. Like Tyrese and Buddy providing a lot of consistent spacing. They had other guys who shot the ball better, but One of them's like, you know, Goga and Jalen Smith, they shot the ball better down the stretch of the season than what they have for their careers, but defenses don't really haven't bought into that yet. So it really wasn't necessarily spacing it for other people in terms of defensive perception. So, you know, I don't think that that's a completely one for one situation in terms of what each of them do. But I do think that the systems between Sacramento and the Pacers are different in the way that like just as an example, like I think one of the smartest plays that they run, they they usually hold up a C. And I assume that that's for Chicago. I don't know that, but they typically go into Chicago action. Buddy sets a touch screen for Tyrese. If they get a switch, it's an automatic that he uses that switch and goes to the other side of the floor into rolling right into Chicago action and it works because he autom- he already has separation from his defender off that touchscreen switch and then he can hit the three. like those types of plays, Because at the same time that he's doing that, they'll bring the left side corner defender cut to the opposite side of the court. So then that help defender isn't going to be able to be there to help on the pocket pass. So that type of stuff, if Buddy draws two on the ball, which in a lot of cases he would because he is a source of gravity in that way, it's then a very easy overhead pass for Buddy Heald to make. Now, how much will he do that next year if you have Brogdon and Duarte and TJ McConnell and whoever else on the roster? I can't answer that, but I do give credit to Rick Carlisle for why um, some of those opportunities were easier to. uh, in addition to just Buddy Heald being willing to do it, um, I guess is the way I would summarize it. But um, I picked the assist rate as the number, the the assist percentile, and now we'll head into the over-under, which I picked 50%. And that is that for the first time for Buddy Heald's career, with the exception of what I referenced earlier, the 25 games he played when he was traded to Sacramento mid-season in 2017, he shot above 50% on twos with the Indiana Pacers. Actually shot 54.9%. Um, he's never done that for a full season in his career. So would you take the over that he could do that for a full season with the Pacers next year?
1: I am not sure. I am trying to be fair here. Uh, I'm just thinking of how much I've seen Buddy play in his career. Um, I think I'll go with the over just because if he is here next year, I do think we'd see a lot more of how he looks this year um, or how he played this year, I should say, and how he was utilized. And I think that's definitely possible because like he does honestly have pretty good craft as a pick and roll scorer. Once he does, you know, as the score as the floors that open up with him getting downhill and and towards the rim. Um, And I do think like, you know, just operating as a cutter and just flowing off the ball. Like I think he has that. And if he's not just, you know, if, if everything is not an incredibly difficult contested two or um, pull up two or pull up three, then I do think that it's definitely you know in the cards for him to, to score that well inside the arc
0: okay i'm definitely not trying to contradict what you just said because oh, i think no. there's merits to it but i was i was initially on the same page as you and then when okay. i started looking at the numbers i was like hmm, his actual efficiency in the pick and roll wasn't that great like really? not yeah. individually like i i think it I mean, I don't have an in on synergy, but I, I don't wanna say that they graded it as poor, but it wasn't um, good or excellent in their grading. Um, I think some of it is what we're seeing here that like he had space to drive into twos, but here's the real kicker. So pull up twos with the Pacers, he shot 50.7% 50 50. on. With the Kings, he shot 42.3% on pull-up twos. Then when you look over at basketball reference, which he did get to the rim more often, and like I said, he shot higher at the rim, but it's still not a real high frequency. Um, he His three-point attempt rate went down with the Pacers, but he took a higher percentage of his shots overall as twos from every range um, when you look over at basketball reference. But predominantly, between three and 16 feet saw the biggest jumps. So between three and 10 feet with the Kings, he shot 30% on 6.3 attempts. With the Pacers, between three and 10 feet, he shot 55% on over 11 attempts. Um, And 10.16, or 10 to 16 feet, he shot 52% um, compared to 43% with the Kings. So those are ginormous jumps going from 30% to 55% between three and 10 and 43% to 52% from 10 to 16, like 10 percentage point jumps in the in-between range um, is quite a lot. And and so is the pull up two rate. So then I was curious to know, like what was happening on the pull up twos? Was it a lot of like, you know, maybe his defender comes off to help on like, you know, Ajax is going to get a lob. So his defender comes off and then Buddy gets a shot and then the defender races out and is off balance. So Buddy attacks a closeout into a pull-up two. I was like, if that's the case, then it's possible that that will carry over into next season. And you could bank on this still being a thing. But when I watched all of the pull-up twos, I was very surprised at the number of them that I would have classified as tough, um, he made pull up twos against Denny, Grant Williams, um, Okongwu, Brandon Clark, um, and not just the caliber of the defender, but also like just being in Atlanta, there was a few that he made and this wasn't only in Atlanta, but it stood out to me very heavily there that like he's snaking the pick and roll and does he's fairly crafty at getting his guy on his back, but snaking the pick and roll from right to get back to his left through traffic and then making twos off of one foot. Like, I think that he is crafty. I just don't know if those types of shots are still going to fall at that exact same clip. So I think that there's possibility that he will still get to the rim for the reasons that I laid out in the clip, especially if he's playing minutes alongside Tyrese Halliburton in that type of way. Um, There might even be more potential with higher caliber players that he might attack more closeouts, depending upon who else is out there than even what we saw. But I think that a, a higher percentage of those wasn't even necessarily him getting past his defender. It was him creating space for twos against some fairly, you know, well-respected defenders. So I'm not sure. I think the pull-up two mark, especially at above 50%, like that is pretty elite. Yeah, um, that's for like pull-up among twos. The best
1: the game.
0: Yeah, is going to hold. So I think I might take the under just because I, that's yeah. been the rest of the case for his career. But I don't think that this completely shapes or would make me think that I'm out on Buddy if that doesn't hold, because going back to the Brogdon conversation, Tyrese's usage rate stays almost steady when Buddy's out on the court. And again, like he has a lot more games under his belt with Buddy. He's been doing it for two years now. There's a certain degree of chemistry there. I know Tyrese himself even said how much like he thought it impacted him positively because Buddy did come over in the trade and there was somebody he was familiar with. But if you look at the numbers from what I said before about Brogdon and Tyrese having a minus 17.2 two-man net rating, when it's Buddy and Tyrese and no Brogdon, which is 581 minutes, they actually outscored opponents with the two of them on the court. They outscored opponents by a very small margin of 1.05 points per 100 possessions. The team's overall net rating after the trade was minus 5.6. So the fact that they still outscored opponents when Buddy and Tyrese were on the floor and Brogdon wasn't is another like if I were the team, I would be paying attention to that. Not just not just to keep Buddy on the roster necessarily, but for what type of archetype of a player is going to best amplify what Tyrese does. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Um, a lot to unpack. I, I think I agree with that. Like, I I really, like, I mean, you could see the chemistry with him and Buddy. So to be fair too, like, he and Tyrese have played Tyrese's entire career together. So that, that makes sense. And you think, like, maybe... Malcolm and him could develop from that chemistry. Um, But I do think the player that Buddy is lends a lot more credence to Tyrese being a more impactful on-ball player, Um, like having somebody who can be that level of shooter and draw the defense the way he can. I think that that is, like, that's the more viable player to have alongside Malcolm. Also, do you want to hear something crazy? I'm sure you know this already, but I'm looking back. Buddy did the exact same thing after he got traded from New Orleans to Sacramento. So like from three to 16 in his first year in New Orleans, he shot 22% from three to 10 and 28% from 10 to 16. And then in 25 games with the Kings, he shot 58% from three to 10 and 54% from 10 to 16, which is like what I'm saying. It's nearly like, he had, similar. It, it's like, so maybe he had I should money. not be in on this
0: it's like he had a honeymoon in both cases when he, when he switched teams, when you look at the numbers, like things that he's the only other time he's done some of the stuff that he just did with the Pacers when he was, when he was initially traded. So yeah, that, that, that raised my eyebrow, but like the fact that like, with the numbers that I showed with Brogdon and what his pick and roll frequency are like, yes, buddy and and upped his pick and roll frequency to 18% compared to 36 for Brogdon post-trade and buddy's spot up frequency was 24 and a half percent. Like I think that if you're gonna and again it's not necessarily that it has to be Buddy in particular, but if you're gonna find a player that I think is going to amplify and and help Tyrese tap into more of you know his own offense, I think that that type of archetype might slightly make more sense. And also um I, the other clip that I wanted to include People can go back and look at from the article I wrote about Tyrese running double drags, because it was a very stark comparison that I do want to point out, like just on Buddy himself and not just even with regard to Tyrese. That, you know, using Buddy as the first screener in a double drag puts so much more tension on that tagger, especially then when you have Chris Duarte and the opposite weak side corner. Um both of them holding space, like that's just an easy dunk for Isaiah Jackson when you go back and watch that clip by comparison to what it was when Miles is the first screener and you're trying to do that same thing with Sabonis. The the gravity was the exact opposite. It was Sabonis drawing two defenders in, which has value if you have people on the perimeter who can hit shots, which the Pacers really didn't. Post-trade, it was Buddy and Chris Duarte, especially in those initial games before Chris hurt the toe, holding space on the outside and Ajax then getting easy twos on the interior. And if they, if they don't retain buddy, I don't know who else is doing that because the difference with buddy is it goes back somewhat to the article. Some of it's comparable, not completely with Eric Gordon, that even though buddy didn't shoot the ball well this year by his standard 36.2%, I believe. Yeah. That would be a career low is people are still defending him. Like, He's, you know, a high level shooter. I think he made the second most threes in the NBA this year, despite what the percentage was. So if he stands behind the line and given how many deep threes he's willing to take, that shifts where those help defenders are at, even if he isn't doing something. And I'm not exactly sure who that person is. Because like, even if it's Brogdon and Brogdon shoots a higher clip, Brogdon does not shoot deep threes like Buddy Heald does. So that would have to be a consideration, especially if they're trying to be a competitive team. Like I get some of the timeline things that, you know, buddy like Malcolm Brogdon doesn't necessarily fit the timeline. If you're trying to pivot to the younger core in the same way that miles Turner was given that miles is only 25, but this is this, all of this is why I wouldn't have a a negative opinion depending upon what else they do. If, if buddy is still on the team, when the season starts.
1: Yeah, I think I'm right there with you. I'm interested to see what happens. And it's funny because I uh I got kind of clown for this earlier this year before the the trade even happened. Like I wrote an article about how I thought um you know because Buddy was available for trade and I just tried to make like a an, an exciting trade article. Um I was like, you know, I'd kind of love to see the Pistons trade for him because I think he's a guy who could maybe help a young team in some ways. Like I think um you know, if the team were to pivot to that and, again, there would have to be some interesting stuff with, like, okay, you know, how much of the touches is he getting on ball compared to some other guys? Um, but, like, having a player with that kind of gravity to open up lanes and just make things less clunky, I think, could be really good for a young team that's trying to grow and develop.
0: Yeah. And, and like, just to summarize everything, like, all three of these players are good players. Like. Yeah that that's just the bottom line of it so i mean it it behooves the pacers that buddy was handled in the way that he was down the stretch once he got traded because either you know it it will help them for the reasons you just said that he could still open stuff up for young players he could help you if you're trying to be a somewhat better team or if trade opportunities present he does look more multi-dimensional than he did three months ago because of what they did so um I think that the reason, the end way that we can conclude this with these three guys is that there's a lot of reasons to be positive, whether they stay on the team through the end of next year or they don't, because they are good players. And I think that they should have value, yeah. probably more value than Russell Westbrook and two first round picks five years from now, even so, um, uh,
1: a good parting shot. <laughs> <laughs> well, Caitlin, so, this, uh, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead.
0: No, Uh, that's the way I was going to summarize it. So.
1: Well, yeah, this uh, this this wraps up our our first episode of the one player review series. I think that was a a really enjoyable one. We got very uh, nitty gritty and deep on on three pretty exciting players who had very uh, different years in Indiana. Um, we will be back with an episode on Thursday, I think Thursday. We'll talk about that after the pod. But yeah, uh, thank you, Caitlin, to everyone listening. Of course, thank you for listening, and most importantly, have a rest of your day.